Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian, and every week Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast, and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network, and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there. And we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking, so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes, such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, my guest today is Nicole C. Kirk, the Frank and Alice Schulman Chair of Unitarian Universalist History at Meadville Lombard Theological School in Chicago, Illinois. She's the author of Wanamaker's Temple, The Business of Religion in Iconic Department Store, which is the subject of our conversation today. Nicole, thank you for being a guest on Historically Thinking. I'm glad to be here. Now, this is a topic which is yet another Philadelphia topic, and I apologize to impatient New Yorkers who listen to this podcast. Um, give me ideas, and I'll do something about New York. But I was attracted to this book because uh, it felt autobiographical to read. Wanamaker's, um, as you make very clear, and as I well recall, even in its dying days, um, even now, really, as a dead department store, has an unreasonable civic impact in Philadelphia. It sort of, it, it has a gravitational pull even long after its uh, cl- closing. And the store remains, it's under a, a different, shorter and more vulgar name. Um, but it has a really um, extraordinary impact upon the life of Philadelphians of, well, of various types. And we'll get to those types in a, in a bit. But I had never realized anything about John Wanamaker, the founder. So let's start by talking about him. Uh, he comes from, as you put it, the, the then village of Grazed Ferry, now a neighborhood of South Philadelphia. Um, they're French German, I believe, and his family's a bunch of brickmakers. So uh, how's he raised and how's he going to retail? Well, it's a, a fascinating story, and it's one that is repeated with great relish. So I was suspicious of it uh, at first. So how much is this this romanticized nostalgia, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps kind of story? Sure. And how much was real? Uh, but it it seems that uh, definitely the central facts, uh, the core facts, were that he would repeat in the stories were true, and so that. His family were uh, brickmakers, and uh, his grandfather and his father continued the business. And it was a rough business. They they had trouble uh, making a living at times, uh, up and down with the markets. Mm-hmm. And at one point, even went out to Indiana and tried their hand at farming. Mm-hmm. And when the grandfather died, they 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 came back. Uh, his mother looks like may have been 
a, a different uh, background. They were innkeepers. How popular that in and all that uh, is is interesting to to dig into. But so he, in many ways, is growing up uh, in this uh, working class uh, family who have middling uh, desires and hopes for their their children. Uh, he has many siblings, and the primary concern of the grandparents and the parents are the education of these children. And it's not easy to find uh, s- uh, schools for Wanamaker and his siblings. And so also uh, the demands of day-to-day life. They need money, and so they also have to send their children out to work. And so he has some education that is, is spotty, some through some of uh, church efforts, and then he's sent out to, to work uh, to help both establish his career, but also uh, to, to bring money into the family. So the immediate – the reason why this book is so fascinating is not just for Philadelphians, is that it combines great currents of 19th century life that will become part of our everyday cultural uh, landscape. I mixed my metaphors there, but that's all right. Um, he – uh, gets into retail as retail is changing. He is one of the people that then pushes retail in, in towards what we can recognize as the sort of pre-internet retail. Um, it has an amazing impact, and we'll get to that in a, bit, in a bit. Yet at the same time, he embodies at least three or four different uh, currents in the evangelical Christianity and really pan-Protestant Christianity uh, more broadly. So it's significant that when he's 13, he starts to work in a store, and some shortly after that, he has a Christian conversion. So let's describe that conversion and then sort of what kind of Christianity he gets into. Well, it's he, he finally finds the, the entry into retail, and for so many uh, men of that generation, this is the same with Dwight L. Moody, uh, the great uh, – revivalist as well, is that they basically have these apprenticeships and they start working in shops and they're learning the trade. And he starts working his way up at this, at one, now most Philadelphians probably don't even remember the name, but the, the, the Tower Hall store. And he is learning the trade. His family had been rather religious, especially his grandfather. He had been a lay Methodist preacher. Uh, he had gone to different Sunday schools. He would go to church, but it was this uh, upstart of a Presbyterian minister who, in fact, was uh, pushed out by the, the, the local Presbyterians, uh, who was hosting different kinds of of worship services that included everyday workmen mm-hmm. who talked about what religion meant to them. And he heard a, a, a gentleman give a speech about how religion was of practical help to him. It wasn't this theological. It wasn't about when you die, you go to heaven. It was how it helped him to live his everyday life. And that was a transformative uh, moment in this independent um, church that had been started by the followers of uh, Reverend Chamberlain and completely switched everything around where he wholeheartedly decided that he was going to be a Christian and that it had practical meaning for his life, how he should live his life, and also how he should run his business. 
So he then gets involved, if I follow this correctly, he then gets in very involved in, in Christian ministry. And he starts a Sunday school, which is completely unlike anybody's idea today of what a Sunday school is. So there's actually a sort of Sunday school movement, isn't that right, at the time in the United States? Absolutely. And had started earlier in the century and was gaining momentum in different cities. And so the idea was go, would young men would go out into the poorest uh, neighborhoods or neighborhoods struggling where there would be a lot of uh, young um, children who may or may not have uh, any kind of access to education, may or may not be attending school, but offer the services of, of, of Sunday school that had an educational quality to it, both for what's in the Bible and teaching about Christianity, but also helping them learn um, some of the basics, uh, arithmetic and, and, and writing in some cases. It depended on the Sunday school. And so he went to the old part of, of his neighborhood. And this is, meanwhile, at the same time when he's doing 20 other things. I mean, that's... Yeah, the, it's, the, it's the, his life. <laughs> yeah, he, he is... <laughs> He, I, I don't think he ever slept. It, it's quite remarkable uh, what he was doing uh, in his, his life with his store at once he, he gets that started at first in a partnership with his, um, his wife's brother, uh, what he's doing at, at, the, at, at the Sunday school and starting that, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, he goes out to the poorest neighborhood and he's attacked by the, the local gang. Um, they're trying to drive him out, and he has this tenacity that he keeps on showing up, but he's afraid, and yet he still keeps going back uh, to try to bring the Sunday school. And it, there's a lot of interest in it from local parents. They're excited about this opportunity for their children. And once he's able to establish himself and get the help of some of the local firemen who he had been uh, preaching to and going out to during uh, this uh, wave of revivals called the Businessmen's Revival in Philadelphia mm-hmm. uh, and also other major cities. He had them, the firemen come in and protect him and tell the gangs to, to leave him alone. And so once that was uh, established, the Sunday school grew very, very quickly. I mean, we're talking and, hundreds of kids in a tent. It's just an incredible idea. Really, and yeah. just sort of, yeah. they just come from the neighborhood to just learn, listen to, learn to sing, listen to sermons. I have no idea what the sermons are about, but it just it's a, it's a movement. It's a it's a movement. It's like a, yeah, it's it's very Bible based. They're they're teaching the Bible stories and and how it has practical meaning for their lives uh, hmm. and and how it can guide them. And it, right, it first he's in rented rooms, then he's in rented buildings, and then they run out. They keep on running out of space, and so. Someone has an idea of taking some discarded sails down mm-hmm. from the wharves and, and sewing them together, which the mothers of the Sunday school do. And they make this great big tent and a lot that is loaned to them to create this Sunday school church. Um, well, it's not a church yet, but a tent Sunday school. But it will eventually become Bethany Presbyterian. That's that's what that Sunday school becomes. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, which I, I think still remains at 22nd and Bainbridge. If it hasn't been torn down. But it's a, a major, major. Well, basically, it, it eventually will cover an entire block, I think. It does. Um, it, actually, the the building that – there was a couple of buildings. That, it's a 26, 22nd in Bainbridge. Um, it, that burned down in the, in the okay. 60s. Uh, the church still exists, but they are out in Havertown. Okay. Um, 
at the same time, uh, sort of blended all to this is the effects of the YMCA. And it's interesting how both the YMCA and the Sunday School movement um, and the Businessmen's Revival, which we need to get to, those are like those become three strands in his life, things that he learns from them. So what in the world is the YMCA? What's the importance of the YMCA in the 1850s? It's not what we think of it today. That's for sure. It's not just a gym. No, it is a it's a movement to serve uh, the young men who are coming into the cities looking for work, many from farms and rural areas. They're separated from their their families, their churches, their communities, and there's a real fear that they will fall into wayward behaviors and uh, lose their way as Christians. And so the Young Men's Christians Associ- Christian Association, our group of leaders in urban settings, but also rural later uh but principally in the beginning, this urban movement that comes out of England where they create meeting rooms. So these young men have a place to go, often their reading rooms and, and different activities develop from there. Uh, but it's, it's to help them keep on the straight and narrow, so to speak. And John Wanamaker is the first paid secretary uh, of a North American branch and really works to develop it. Now, not all the churches were fans of it. They felt threatened by the YMCA and that the YMCA would steal members mm-hmm. uh, from them. And so there was uh, some, there wasn't a wholehearted support by local churches uh, from the beginning that, that came later. Well, there, there's really in, in Wanamaker's, you can see certain features of American Protestantism and American evangelicalism Um there's at that moment, I mean, he, the, that revival that attracts him is in this independent Presbyterian church by that pastor who didn't really get along with the old, the old school. Um, he sort of transitions from a family of Methodists to Presbyterianism. I'm not sure that they were that different as far as he was concerned. You've got the YMCA, this sort of, these sort of, um, what we could call parachurch institutions are important to him. Um, a lot of the previous, and, and I'm, I'm never sure theological ideas as such never seem to be too much of interest to him. He's interested in, in what can be made practical about it. Um, all these things are, are currents that last to this day in, in American Christianity, really broadly, even Catholics have been, have been affected by them. Absolutely. And, he is someone who's quite extraordinary because he doesn't worry himself about theological sectarian lines right. uh, for for his his life. So his grandfather is this lay Methodist preacher. A mission Sunday school that comes to his area for his early education is run by uh, uh, various religious groups. When he goes into the Sunday school mission movement and he, he helps to start Bethany. Uh, well, he is, is getting coaching from the Lutherans. <laughs> so, and then later on, he is working with the YMCA across a broad, uh, a swath of different, uh, Protestant traditions that are all engaged. Again, some are feeling threatened, but others are, are feeling, uh, the strong need for this. He's supporting the Salvation Army. Mm-hmm. When you look at every major moral reform movement that's rooted in Protestantism mm-hmm. uh, of the late 19th and early 20th century, John Wanamaker is involved in some way. Yeah. And then eventually he'll 
turn his finance department store into a sort of Gothic cathedral and he gets buried in an Anglo-Catholic church. So it's quite a, he goes through them all. Um, let's go to the, um, the store, or at least the first store. You've got Oak Hall is that first store that he starts with his brother-in-law. Um, it's always surprising for modern people to realize that some of the things that we take for granted about retail were not for very much not part of the culture in, say, the 1840s or the 1850s. And, for example, that you could actually take down a product and look at it. Um, Wanamaker does that at Oak Hall. You can actually look at the goods. What else does he do? Well, he's a part of this, what uh, some scholars have called the revolutionizing of retail. Mm -hmm. And so customers can come in and they can browse. Uh, when he's starting his store, it's still this idea that if you are entering a store, you must buy something. <laughs> and if, if you appear to be browsing for too long, you'll be thrown out. They would often have a guard at the door. Uh, and also to bring people in, but also to, to keep those out who just want to look around and maybe perhaps uh, steal something. And so browsing was, was not allowed. There was this idea that you could only look at sample goods. The clerk was the one who handled the goods. You couldn't really uh, go through a pile of, of, of material yourself. And you would be shown a set of goods, and in some retailers who were – uh, not on the up and up would then after you decided you wanted that particular cloth or that particular uh, uh, item to buy, they would go in the back and they would not bring the same quality mm -hmm. uh, out for your purchase. And so it would be this bait and switch. This is the con have, concept I was first introduced to at an English uh, farm market, but go on. <laughs> yes, You had to haggle for your price. So, yeah you would have to go back and forth and you know, some people, Oh, I wish you could, uh, I hear when they, they travel abroad and they get to haggle, they kind of enjoy it. Uh, but think if you have to haggle for everything yeah. and you know that one person, your friend down the street might get a better price than you because they're more friendly with the, the shopkeeper, the mm -hmm. shopkeeper prefers them. Uh, so that's another piece of it. And then also this idea, uh, so changing from haggling to one price, the same price mm -hmm. for everyone, and that you can return your merchandise that if it's not up to your satisfaction, if it doesn't work. And that was a huge change. And so these are things that we take for granted, that we can go in a store and browse, that the price on the item is the, the, the price that's going to be sold or, it, you, you know, sometimes or it's on sale, so it'll be less. And that we, uh, the goods that we're purchasing or look at are the goods that we're going to be taking home. It's the same quality. And this idea that uh, if you, it doesn't work out for you, that there is a way to bring it back in most circumstances. So this is a tremendous success for him. And he expands and expands and expands. And he moves uh, by what, the 1870s, he's moving from near Independence Hall to the railroad depot, which uh, for Reading, which is across Caddy Corner, it's on the site as I take it from what where Wanamaker's is now. The building is now located, right? Uh, so, say that again. The Grant he moves to a new site, the Grand Depot, which is the old Reading Depot, uh, and it's more or less on the site of where Wanamaker's is today by City Hall. 
Well, it, it is the same site, but it's uh, it was actually a, a train freight depot. Yeah. And they uh, the train lines, the tracks were cut off by the the new building of the the new city hall. And he actually opened it first, not as his main store. Mm -hmm. He thought about it, but he was worried that Mm -hmm. this was too big and everyone would, uh, a lot of people thought he was going to fail. And so what he did is he kept his original um, businesses uh, in other parts of town. He had a couple of retail stores at that point, one that was higher end, uh, the John Wanamaker and Company. He had also turned some over to to some of the relatives, but he didn't want to go all in at first. And so with the timing of the 1876 centennial, he opened an annex to the fair in in this train freight depot. And he had thought about trying to have people bring in different departments, almost like – the uh, the arcades that you can find in Europe still today, where there's different shops by different shop owners, or what we call today's malls, mm-hmm. which that's modeled after, that people have different stores and specialties. People weren't interested, so he thought, okay, I'll do it. I'll have this annex, and I will try out this idea of having these different uh, areas or specialties of merchandise. Now, I use the term department store. Wanamaker never liked that uh, name, Why not? department store. Um, I couldn't figure that out, actually. Uh, but he, there was a lot of things that he objected to, and that was one of it. I think he didn't think it was as elegant as uh-huh. yeah. what, what I, I believe, but I'm, I never found why he rejected that. Uh, so the annex uh, to the Centennial Affair goes very, very well. And mm-hmm. so then he closes it and transforms it into a store and eventually, and, and fairly quickly, if you think about it, over time, switches all his energy and that becomes his main store where later in three phases, the Daniel Burnham designed uh, market streets building that we see today. That's so uh, beautiful and elegant right there next to city hall. That's built on the same side as the train depot. And he's continuing to do business as they are constructing the new building at the same time. That was an extraordinary that he did that. I I had absolutely no idea. Um, (laughs) But, uh, it's interesting. You mentioned the 1876 Centennial Exhibition. Centennial Exhibitions are extremely important to this story. Um, in many ways, uh, department stores seem to be based on uh, the Centennial Exhibitions. Um, there's a clear he, – he calls it an annex to the exhibition, which is kind of presumptuous of him. But in some ways, he's creating a perpetual year-long day-to-day exhibition. Um and it's also interesting that museums are getting their start out of the exhibitions. And there's in many ways that that stores that he builds, that both the Grand Depot, but then the, the, the main store that still exists, they are um, a very curious hybrid of store and museum uh, coming out of the grand exhibitions, great exhibitions. Absolutely. So Neil Harris uh, is one historian uh, scholar, along with a group of others, really identified these interlacing of these three institutions uh, back in the, the the 1980s. And so when you look at museums and you look at these uh, great exhibitions, World's Fairs, and you look at department stores, the three are really emerging into uh, their own simultaneously and they're learning from each other and they're borrowing from each other. And so Mm -hmm. department stores, yes, 
you like the grand exhibition, you can see all these amazing, wonderful things. And department stores in those days were that way. When you go to, to, to Macy's, which, by the way, I am fond of Macy's because they have preserved Wanamaker's. Yeah, that's, that's nice. Yeah, go on. Yeah. <laughs> and Marshall Fields. But I also know uh, when they take over and, and change the name of a beloved store, it is uh, it is really hard. But they they did more than just sell goods. They would have these amazing, fantastic uh, displays. Uh, they would bring in scientific uh, displays. They would have uh, like Wanamaker, but others' artwork. And so you could do so much more and you could see and learn uh, through some of these educational exhibits. And then you could also look at these you know, elegant goods laid out and displayed in these fantastic, uh, uh, sometimes whimsical, sometimes uh, lavish ways. And you're seeing the same things at exhibitions, but n- none of that you're not allowed to buy any of that. Mm-hmm. And at the department store, everything is for sale. And and then the display, I, the idea of how to display and display things attractively uh, and what the purpose of a museum is. And so early museums really thinking about the education of the masses. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, all interrelated. And many of, of, especially in the American context, American museums are learning about display from the great exhibition exhibitions that's where they get off in their start you have an exhibition coming to town a building one of the few buildings that is supposed to be permanent is designated as the the future art museum of that city uh a grander home and some of the first displays for the art museum come from the exhibitions that the city buys or sometimes the displayers abandoned because it's too expensive to ship back <laughs> to Europe or another country. There's um, and, uh, yeah. He also gets uh, he gets stuff from these exhibitions. Uh, he the eagle, the famous eagle in the center of Wanamaker's, comes from the 1904 St. Louis exhibition, and so does the organ uh, with yes. what 72,000 pipes. So he buys stuff <laughs> there, but he he also gets uh, spiritual sustenance almost from these exhibitions. Uh, he goes to the the Great White City in Chicago in 1893, and he gets ideas for his new store, and he ends up getting the architect of that, Daniel Burnham of the White City, and he does the new store. It's it's really interesting. He goes to the Paris Salon, the annual salon eventually, which is also a sort of off, other type of exhibition, an offshoot of the exhibitions. And he buys maniacally uh, the stuff that he finds there. So it's the, the these exhibitions are really important to him personally as well and, and for ideas and, yeah, spiritual sustenance of a kind. Absolutely. Well, an inspiration and excitement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he just, yeah, he absolutely gets uh, pulled in. Uh, but he's not the only one. So many people uh, make that effort from across the country to go to Philadelphia in 1876, to go to Chicago in 1893, to go to St. Louis mm-hmm. uh, and, and later uh, uh, San Francisco. And there's so many of these smaller world's fairs too. I mean, mm-hmm. there's one in Atlanta, the ones we don't necessarily speak of on the day to day compared to these larger ones, but they, they draw tremendous crowds and Wanamaker is one of them. And he visits the Paris lawns year after year to see uh, these exhibits uh, of, of art and he gets excited about it and mm-hmm. so excited that he wants to, to bring it back. And some of it I think is definitely about him. And he is uh, growing more and more wealthy. And so to have uh, great art in your home is is beefing up your pedigree, so to speak. 
but also he's wanting to share it with others. So he's displaying art in his church. He's displaying, uh, loaning art to uh, the young men's club at his church. He's uh, putting the art in his store. He has art in his country home and his city home. And uh, this idea of, of sharing that display is also coming from the those great exhibitions. Well, let's, as I said, and uh, he isn't too interested in theological, the theology, but he is, there is a continuing emphasis that you uh, relate uh, in Wanamaker's writing um, on mind and, and ideas, which strikes me as very interesting. He's certainly influenced by other people's ideas. So let's briskly uh, run through them. Uh, first of all, there's sort of the revivalism of his his and these people are all well some of them are his friends, um, and the first would be would be Dwight Moody, the revivalist. So what's he yes. learn? What's he learn from Moody? I was thinking about that. I think he he learns from Moody uh, the the and I think he he already knew this, but to to see it in action, the power of advertising. Mm-hmm. And the ability to uh, excite people around uh, the ideas of, in this case, Christianity. And uh, that by having something new and coming to town and bringing it uh, to to share with people, as Moody was doing with uh, the revivals, uh, with his uh, songster uh, sidekick, Ira Sankey. Yeah. That this was, there was a great power of this. He also learned this from John Chambers, his, uh, the minister at the First Independent Presbyterian, where he had his, his conversion. Uh, he was putting advertisements in the paper, which was not done for churches at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's this idea that, and so he's seeing business and religion being blended by these religious leaders. Now, they actually have some critical, uh, they have some strong critique of business. Yes. And yet, they are relying, especially Moody, uh, on business people to fund the revivals, to loan the space. Wanamaker loans the train shed. Mm-hmm. He loans the ushers, the the, the people power to uh, run such a large uh, uh, revival day after day. And so he's seeing this idea of business and religion can go together, uh, but he's interpreting it in a very different way than Moody. Yeah, it's very. You begin the book with this sort of conflict uh, between Moody and Wanamaker over his course as a businessman, which is very interesting. So he doesn't he doesn't take away Moody's skepticism towards business, but he does. There is um, there's in some ways even his education of his store workers is why it's based on the YMCA. It's based on a Sunday school, but there's an idea. There's I, I can't quite. Shake that there's like a continuing revival uh, in one way or the other to go on amongst his his employees. Um, Absolutely, uh, that's something I throughout the book thought about how, in many ways, that the Moody revival that swept Philadelphia, starting in the fall of 1875, going into 1876, uh, right before the the, the Centennial Exhibition is a revival that never stops at Wanamaker's mm-hmm. and that he finds ways to continue it through uh, the kinds of programs for his employees, uh, but also some of the 
uh, art exhibits and definitely in the Christmas cathedrals that his, he has this amazing art team build year after year and grows more and more lavish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the music flowing through the store with, you know, you, I think you said 72,000 pipes. Uh, there's a fantastic group called the Friends of uh, the Wanamaker Organ. And there's all there's and there's a, 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 a amazing book about the organ itself. Um, it's it's hard to tell how many pipes there are because they <laughs> they like to brag about yeah, who's the I biggest know. and the best. And yeah. so there's all these different numbers. I, tens I, of thousands of pipes. <laughs> let's just say it. And, <laughs> uh, it's, we can use scientific notation for it. So that's how many pipes there are. Um, let's another influential related this this concept of the businessman uh, is. Uh, local uh, Philadelphia celebrity, Russell Conwell, a uh, Baptist minister uh, who's very involved in Wanamaker's life, I take it, um, and is as is as perhaps as involved in Wanamaker in the future life of Philadelphia. So what's Russell Conwell's message? What's his idea that Wanamaker takes up? Well, Russell Conwell is a fascinating figure. Uh, he started his life as a, a, an attorney and came to religion. Uh, and when I was doing the research for the book as an American historian, historian of American religion, I was really struck by the similarities to Conwell's, uh, prosperity gospel, I call it, mm-hmm. uh, or, or gospel of wealth is another name for it, where, uh, it's not only okay to make money, it, God's blessing you, uh, if you are making money and you're a devout Christian, but part of your responsibility is then to spend that money in helping the community and making a better life and giving it to your church. Yes. But also, uh, to those in need. And, and I knew Conwell had written after John Wanamaker's death, a, um, biography of him. I knew there was some kind of connection, but I didn't know if that was a distant admiration they live in the same city. Doesn't mean they know each other. Mm-hmm. They seem to know the same friends. And so I thought, well, I want to see if they actually knew each other. And so when I finally found the connections, I was like, oh, there it is. Uh, it was very exciting because I, I, I sensed that they had to know each other, but I couldn't find evidence for mm-hmm. a while. And, and then there it was that they uh, had a great admiration for each other and want to make her spent a lot of time promoting Conwell's famous Acres of Diamonds uh, lecture that he gave on the Chautauqua, Chautauqua circuit around the country thousands of times on his radio station at the uh, Wanamaker's uh, radio station. And so the Acres of Diamonds, he's telling people that uh, you're supposed to make money uh, as Christians, and it's a good thing because you help spread the Christian gospel. You can build the churches. You can buy the Bibles. It, uh, it's a very interesting t- thing. I've read I've read responses to that speech from atheists and Jews who loved it. Uh, I had never heard of it before until I was reading it somewhere else. Someone else said, yeah, I heard that Acres of Diamond speech. And it was pretty good. And this guy was like, you know, he was a secularized Jew uh, who was writing that. And it's just, and it, who is that? And it, so it's kind of crazy what people read into that speech. Well, and it's, it's not uh, – he, he's talking – He's, he's giving all these examples that, and he changes it from time to time. Mm-hmm. So it could be a every, speech. yeah, yeah, he changes the length of it from, uh, depending on where he's giving the lecture. He also changes some of the examples, mm-hmm. uh, but so many of the examples are these stories about how people go out in the world and they're trying to find their wealth 
when if they just stay where they are and look in their community and look in their own backyard hmm. and work really hard that they can f find success where they're at and that it doesn't have to be. So it's really kind of this go West young man, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of mentality but that you, you can make it yourself. But it's a, actually, it's go home young man. Isn't it? I mean, it's, it's it, it rather than go West. That's true. That's yeah. true. It's very, which is very, very contradictory to sort of the American idea. Um, you would think, but man, he gave that speech a lot and it, it had a, what would seem to be a disproportionate influence considering that it is, as you say, it seems like sort of bland prosperity gospel. Boy, did it have an influence, but he was also not just a prosperity gospeler. He, uh, he started Temple university in his pastor's study. Um, it was you, you and I were talking about this before we started recording. Absolutely. Uh, Conwell, and I was tempted after I was finishing this book that perhaps my next book would be on Russell Conwell mm -hmm. because I find him so interesting. Uh, I've decided not to go in that direction, but I may come back to him and I hear some other scholars are working on him right now. So I'm, I'm delighted by that. Mm -hmm. He, he answered, uh, he, he did what he talked about in some ways. And so when he had working, a working man who needed some further education. And so he started having meetings in his study and this, uh, this guy started bringing his friends and all of a sudden he realizes he has a school and that it soon outgrows the, the space of his church basement. <laughs> and, and this is the founding of Temple University, which in many ways is, is quite progressive because women are, are, um, allowed admittance pretty early in the history and uh, really trying to make affordable education for the people of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So let's back to uh, Wanamaker and the ideas that influenced him. Two other people besides uh, Moody and Conwell, um, much more of the um, sort of the intellectual category. Uh, one is John Ruskin. So briefly, what was John Ruskin's influence on Wanamaker? Well, John Ruskin was influential on a lot of people in uh, the late twentieth and I mean, late nineteenth, early twentieth century. And he's an art critic, he's a writer, and he's preaching in, in some respects in his many writings about aesthetics and beauty and the power of aesthetics uh, to uh, and beautiful things and beautiful architecture to have this religious uh, uh, ability to, to bring people to a higher moral plane. Mm -hmm. And he also is promoting uh, Gothic, uh, what we call Gothic architecture, as this kind of, uh, he divorces it from uh, Catholicism. It is almost this pre-Christian to the roots of Christian architecture that is embracing the world and nature and the idea of craftsmanship. And, and those aesthetics and blending it all together. And so Wanamaker and, and many others are reading Ruskin and they're influenced uh, by Ruskin. He, he quotes Ruskin in, in some of his uh, materials at the, at the store that, that you don't have to, it, it, and this, in Wanamaker's reading this as, as uh, this, this Presbyterian Christian, that uh, beautiful arts and beautiful buildings and beautiful spaces have the power to change people. And this, of course, is taken up also by landscape architects and the, 
the, the movement of, of public parks and, and gardens in this country. Uh, and so he's, he's thinking about this as he starts to take a critical eye to the Wanamaker store that he has that's in this train shed that is in these cobbled together buildings because he's buying up this land and adding on continuously and the store is growing and that he wants to, to build a building that is a, a building that has a, a civic role uh, in the city that is beautiful, that can uh, make people think about the city and act in the city in, in a moral way by the lines of the architecture and how the space makes you feel when you walk in. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is also for art displays and, and merchandise display. So, he, so we should, he's feeding this on there. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, and finally horse Bushnell, which who's I think the least known of all these people. What's, what are his briefly, who, what are his ideas and on Wanamaker? He, he, he cites him a lot or you cite Bushnell a lot. Uh, well, yes, I cite Bushnell, uh, and Wanamaker doesn't. Uh, he's this uh, congregational minister. He's famous for several books, but one of the most famous is his concept of Christian nurture. And so getting away from this sudden kind of a conversion experience that was popular in previous generations, and he, in his writings, Bushnell is talking about the idea that you can cultivate uh, Christianity and moral behavior by having a Christian home. So in thinking about your children, uh, it's not so much about trying to have a conversion experience or leading up to that, but if you construct your home life as a Christian home life, which is, you know, up for meaning what that looks like, but keeping a clean home and uh, doing prayer and Bible study together and living a moral upright life, this is going to go further in transforming your children into Christians than necessarily a sudden conversion experience. It's, and so this the idea of Christian nurture then is also very adaptable and uh, goes well with Ruskin. And it, it, it Wanamaker, of course, believes this for the home and sort of preaches that message to his customers. But also what Bushnell applies to the home, Wanamaker will apply to the store. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he can do that for his employees and for his customers, which is kind of incredibly audacious idea. Um, so it, let's put all this stuff together. So there's in one way, as I was reading this, it struck me what Wanamaker wasn't running was wasn't a department store. It was a school. Um, it was designed to mold and educate anyone that came into it. Uh, so I think you devote an entire chapter, chapter three, to the, the Wanamaker cadets, which um, I had never heard of before in my life, but I instantly realized this clicked with something I remembered waiting uh, sometime for breakfast with Santa a long, long ago at the Wanamaker elevators. You call crowd and wait to be taken up to the eighth floor uh, to the Crystal Tea Room. And they played Reveille. And that was how the store opened. And yes. it turns out that was originally had been actual played over the loudspeaker system by actual physical kids who worked in the store and were in a cadet, yes. cadet corps. So describe that. That's just an incredible idea. Yeah, so Wanamaker, uh, definitely influenced by both the Sunday School Mission Movement and uh, YMCA. the YMCA. Yeah. He... He worries about the young workers. He has some uh, store workers as young as 12, 13 years old. Uh, it's legal at that, still at that point when he's starting out. 
He has his own memories of going to work around that age. And he worries that they're not getting an education because they're working. And so he decides to start a, a school program to give them the education and the skills that they need to su succeed not only in his stores, so there's also how can you be a better worker, uh, but also for their lives. And so he starts the school that quickly mushrooms into a not only full-fledged school, but this military-style uh, program called the Wanamaker Cadets that first is only based on the young men of the store, but later, because the young women say, we want to, to participate, he sends it to them. He opens a camp on the Jersey Shore so they incredible. can have yeah, seashore breezes. Uh, and this is, I should, say, I should say that there, there are these, uh, I remember my, my aunt told me that my, my great aunt would sponsor fresh air kids from New York every summer. So this is a, this is this idea of kids getting out of the city to the, the fresh air of the country or the sea. This is a very, very standard thing at the time. So yeah, yeah. huge movement. This yeah. is about summer camps. This is also the military style schools are opening military style camps. You have the boy scouts mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. of America. Yeah. So all of this is intertwined and he, is taking these ideas and he's tapping into it, a Salvation Army, you know, yeah. military style, and he is is bringing it into his store program. And so, yes, the cadets open the store uh, uh, with uh, their bugle calls in the morning. They close the store by playing taps. And then later, uh, as the program really develops, I mean, they're marching in the streets uh, for special programs. So they are both part of their education program and the training of these young uh, people's bodies and how they, they bring themselves in the world, how they can march, how they can stand up straight, mm -hmm. um, how they can have military precision, but also it advertises the store mm -hmm. uh, through music, sound, and this, this display. And what I, I found really, really kind of charming was that when he built that new building, that ninth floor was devoted to the school. There are 15 classrooms. Um, and what I thought was most charming was that he replicated the Nassau Hall uh, common room in that space uh, so that these kids could be could be part of like they could be in a Princetonian, an Ivy League space. Yes. Yeah. So it's a, yeah, the faculty room. I've, I've been in the Princeton University old Nassau Hall room and it is uh, stunning uh, and woodwork and, and beautiful. And his two sons had, had gone to Princeton University. And so, yes, he tries to, to bring a taste of that for his, uh, his young employees. And, uh, it, and it's not just the ninth floor. There is on the rooftop, he, <laughs> he builds an outdoor uh, running track and, and gym. And, there's, uh, and it's, it's, more, it's more than it, it, one of the things that's very hard when you're studying Wanamakers is that that huge building, that space has changed a lot. In those so much, floors. Yeah, yeah. So the arts galleries move from floor to floor and, and some of his spaces that he uses for employees. But he dedicates a lot of floor space to his employee programs. And to a clinic. And we don't have time to get into all the stuff that he, he does to basic out of uh, – enlightened benevolence, which uh, the more I think about it was sort of a Philadelphia businessman's tradition. Um, they did well by doing good. Um, you know, it was, he cut down absentee hours by starting a clinic, but you could still, yes. you could still get um, dentistry and even chiropractic at Wanamaker's if you were an employee. So, um, yes. 
customers, uh, we're, we'll get into that. The whole structure of the store is designed to teach and, and to inspire. We'll get into that. But I was struck by the amount of words, the number of pamphlets and advertisements that poured out. I, I suspect he wrote a bunch of them and other people wrote a lot more um, that customers were bombarded with words. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's hard to tell who wrote the copy yeah. on a lot of, uh, a lot of things. And I think his workers, but he also had a tradition of personally writing these editorial pieces for his daily advertisements that ran six days a week, never uh-huh. Sunday. Uh, cause he didn't believe on having the store open on Sunday. So he, he was writing uh, a six days a week column or at least part of the time. Who knows? But. Yes. For these full page ads with this kind of funky <laughs> wisdom. <laughs> uh. And they're telling people what to look for when you're looking at uh, different quality goods. How do you tell what the, the wool is good or not? How to how to tell if uh, the stove is uh, efficient and it's burning the the wood. Huh. And, and these these are then after his death, the store continues to run them in the advertisements uh, long after he he's gone and stopped writing. So they have their own life. So. He's writing, other people are writing, but yes, words are important at Wanamaker's as much as sound and, and the visual and the physical sensation mm-hmm. of the space of the store. Well, let's, let's talk about sound um, since uh, thanks to – there's um, – thanks to the way the, – the revivalism in which he was raised and thanks to, to, to Sankey and so on, um, there's an absolute – the choral music is absolutely – is central to uh, the store. Uh, he opens with what with a sing-along at what time? 7.30, 6.30 every morning? Um, well, the, yes, the employees sing-along. Yes, yeah. the employees to start their day and this uh, to, to lift them up, to bring them to a different mindset. Now, music is very popular in stores, other department stores, just even down the street. Strawbridge um, <laughs> has this huge choir. Mm-hmm. So he's not in, okay. in many of the things that he's doing, he's not the only person doing it. And even though he has a long list of first, the Wanamaker store is first to do this. A lot of them are debatable, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it's the way that he uh, combines them all is, is the interesting part to me. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and for me, and that's, and that's what I, I, I try to lift up is that how he's using the music but, and what he thinks the music is for. But he's got two concert halls. Uh, the and God knows what else he's got the orchestras, bands, choirs all out of the employees, right? Or yes, yes. Well, he's bringing he's bringing in famous uh, uh, organ organist of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's famous conductors, but a lot of times and uh, the majority of the time they're working with the Wanamaker orchestra, bands, and other musical features. And this is he has concert halls in the Philadelphia store, but he also has a New York city mm-hmm. store and he also has music going there all the time as well. And these different programs and they are, uh, performance pieces, uh, the organs playing uh, accompanied by a band and it's this, he's advertising it. He's broadcasting it on the radio in the later years. Uh, music is, uh, when, when the Wanamaker cadets go out in the street, they're playing music in their mm-hmm. military bands and so music permeates so much of the Wanamaker experience. And it's this is, of course, I think the Philadelphia Orchestra dates to 1898, which makes it one of the oldest in the country. Um, this is or, symphony orchestras are just starting in the United States in the 1890s. And I'll, so this is 
seems to be another thing that perhaps comes out of the World's Fair. Um, but anyway, this is another sort of a way in which uh, this department store transcends the categories of symphony and cultural institution and museum. Uh, yes, absolutely. And uh, I, this is the, the, the time of, of popularity of symphony orchestras, but not everyone's going to the symphony. And right. so and if you've ever gone through Wanamaker's, even today, uh, but in any time in its history, it's quite a fantastic experience to be in one part of the store and all of a sudden yeah right exactly. it's not this canned piped music no <laughs> it is this thundering organ music and it just draws you in you're like where is that coming I, from i can testify that yeah mothers lose small children um by because they hear the big noise and they go at least in my case go running towards it uh yeah. leaving everything behind um, because you want to see what's going on. It's, it's, uh, it's, well, we'll get to that. It's, we want to, we want to tie all this up with a neat bow, uh, with the grand court. Um, because it's all part of the, it all made sense after I read your book. Um, you mentioned the art galleries, art galleries in a department store. That's because, yes. that's because of Ruskin, but it just, I was staggered by the amount of, well, he would go to the Paris salon and buy 250, 350 paintings. Well, 350 one year and then cut back to 250 or 225. <laughs> yes. um, so he's buying what – he's not buying impressionists. Um, Dr. Barnes probably hated him and thought he was a real clown. Um, <laughs> he's buying the Academy Realist stuff. Although, uh, although I have to say some of it like Le Conqueron, which I spent a lot of time searching for on the internet. It's kind of disappeared. Some of this stuff is really weird. Um, it's kind of cool. Um, but he's buying all this stuff and putting it in his store. Um, why? Well, I think it's uh, a couple of reasons. It is to to share that aesthetic beauty and because he believes in its ability to make people better people, to make them more moral, to behave uh, in a better way in the world, to educate them. Uh, many, but not all, uh, of the, the subjects are Christian, uh, based, although interestingly enough, these are, are images from, uh, Catholicism, mm -hmm. uh, mostly, but also, uh, a piece of it is also fire danger. Uh, he has a huge art gallery that is separate to his, uh, mansion, uh, his country home, Lindenhurst. Uh, outside of the city of Philadelphia, and he builds this, this separate gallery to house the hundreds and hundreds of paintings and statues and glass uh, art work that he's bringing in. And he builds an artificial pond to protect it from fire. Uh, his sons have had homes burned down. He's very worried about fire. And then the horrific thing that he fears the most is fire breaks out at Lindenhurst hmm. and burns down the entire home and not all, but a good portion of the, the art collection is taken with it. Hmm. And this is, so he's already displaying some art in the store. He has, I think these smaller galleries, but it's after the fire when he really brings in the largest amount of art into the store. And so I think also it's, it's sharing it, but it's also protecting it because the building has the latest in mm -hmm. sire, uh, fire suppression and protection. So the, the sort of the most important part of his collection, uh, let's just talk about how they're displayed, um, are 
for him, the most important part is the Christ before Pilate and Christ on the cross, right? That's by a Hungarian artist, Munkaji. Yes. And, uh, and describe where they're displayed. Uh, and I just, my, my aunt and father were just telling me about their memories of, of this. Oh, they, they've, yeah. they got to experience it. Oh yes, they did. So there's, there's two major places for these, um, paintings, which, uh, I just want to say, I had the opportunity to see in person. Where uh, are they? They're in, in they're in, in Hungary. Uh, they're in Hungary now. And really? so, huh. They're in a museum, uh, and right now they're on loan from the the folks. It was actually part of a trilogy. Wanamaker only opened uh, owns two of them, mm. and they are reunited right now in this uh, uh, museum and in, in this small town in in Hungary. And I had the opportunity to visit this summer, and I have to say it was astounding because they are enormous paintings. They're like three hundred square feet, right? Each or something like that. They're ridiculous. Yeah, they. I, I. It's. It's hard to even talk about the proportion. Uh, yeah. And when they are situated near ground level, you feel like you can walk into the painting, and the people are the same size of you, and you could be a part of the story. So you can walk into the moment of Jesus on the cross at Calvary. <laughs> you can walk into the moment of Jesus before Pilate and and this crowd of people. Uh, and Wanamaker, during his lifetime, had a special gallery, which was this this quiet uh, gallery that that really focused. The other art eventually came into this gallery, but where it's lit in a particular way, and it's it is displayed in this way where it's close to ground level, the lower edge of the frame, where you feel like you can walk into it. And he would often go during different parts of the day and sit with those paintings and contemplate them. And he would encourage visitors during Lent to to go see the paintings in this private, quiet uh, gallery, and that's certainly how they're displayed right now in um, in Hungary. Is that you you go in, and I was very lucky. I just had my son with me uh, that day, so it's just the two of us, and we we go in, and no one else is in there. <laughs> and I had this moment. I thought this is how it would be for Wanamaker sometimes. Mm-hmm. John Wanamaker could be alone with these magnificent paintings. Now, after his death, his son, Broadman, starts displaying them during Lent, leading up to, to Easter, in the Grand Court on either side of this enormous atrium space. And so you, on this, on this you know, velvet curtains, and there's other symbols about Easter that are, are scattered about, but you walk into the middle of an American department store in a major American city (laughs) and it's Lent and you look up and there is Jesus on the cross (laughs) in the center where you can also look up onto the other floors. You can look across the grand court and see jewelry cases and clothing for sale. And there's Jesus on the cross and there is, is Jesus with a, a crowd of folks having a conversation with Pilate. Pontius Pilate, um, the story from the Bible. And so it's it's quite startling, uh, and it becomes tremendously popular. And this is, I couldn't find letters that are, are much earlier, but certainly in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. And so I suspect there's letters that are earlier um, that are just weren't saved in the archive, where people write in to the Wanamaker department store, and they talk about their religious and moving experiences of looking at these paintings in the center of the store. And people seem, some people 
seem to make this a sort of a yearly pilgrimage. Um, yes. And one employee, you uh, cite a pamphlet she wrote to assist people with prayer and meditation. Uh, yes. This is all going on in a department store. It's And this is sort of where we're, we're driving at. He's created a kind of a cathedral. I mean, Wanamaker's Temple is the title of the book. Um, and it is in a really jarring, ju- juxtaposing way, if that's a adjective. It becomes a part of their uh, people's way of uh, observance of, of Easter and the season of Lent and for, for Christmas. I mean, Al, you mentioned to me that you used to go and see the, the electric, the oh, light show. Yeah. And now this, this year I, I'm going back because now I'm inspired. But yes, this is this was part of our liturgy. Um, yes. And, and the crystal tea room experience absolutely. and going to see Santa. Yeah. And so those kinds of rituals, um, I have that every year with uh, the, the now Macy's formerly Marshall Fields windows. I go mm-hmm. every year to see uh, are, are they telling the same Christmas story? Uh, last few years, it has been Nutcracker. This year, they changed the story. Uh, you know, what's And even if it's the same story that I know, yeah. I still look at the windows and I and I marvel at them, and then I go in, I look at the, the, the giant Christmas tree and how they decorate the store, uh, and it still has magic. And then I go up for, this is Marshall Fields, mm-hmm. mind you, I go up to the Walnut uh, Room and see their magnificent Christmas tree. And so people are doing the same thing in Philadelphia, yeah, and they are doing this for Christmas, and then they're doing it for Easter. I had just, I had never realized, and as a kid, you know, this was certainly, I, this was, you know, you become very traditionalist by the age of three. I mean, you have to keep on doing these things um, because we've always done it that way. Um, and uh, I, it was certainly part of a Philadelphia Christmas experience that the, what I had not realized was that in many ways, what Breakfast with Santa was not what John Wanamaker, the liturgy that John Wanamaker was aiming at, or Rodman Wanamaker for that matter, that these that I was right to think of this as a liturgy and in, in, in a deepest, in a deeper sense, this was a, a sort of a continuing Christian observance, which he insisted be not insinuated, but uh, be at the center of the store, literally at the center of the store. And it was quite amazing to me. I hadn't realized, I'd never realized that's where it came from. Yes. And, and other folks, I mean, the, the whole purpose of decorating your stores and having the windows is to bring shoppers in. Sure. And for Wanamaker, that's that is also true. Yep. And for Wanamaker, this is also an expression of his Christian beliefs. And for his son Rodman, less so. Rodman is more of a cultural Christian, if, <laughs> if that's a, a term. Uh, but he continues these uh, both patriotic and religious observances in the store. And I think in part to honor his his father, in part to share the beauty of the art. He was a great art collector. He also did some of the Impressionist. Uh, I did. Uh, his father didn't, but no. Rodman did start to pick up on that, but not quite as, as much as, <laughs> as someone from today's point of view, you're like, oh, if you only had. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, the it's funny. The academics are coming back into vogue. Um, but because uh, I guess everything else is taken is snapped up, so they have to have their day sometime. Um, yes. The uh, we've been touching on it, but let's just finish this off by discussing the Grand Court, where all this stuff comes together. Um, it's he's gotten Daniel Burnham as his architect. Um, he creates then this immense building, what nine, ten stories tall, bit very big, but also an entire city block. Um, and at the center of it is an atrium that's. You tell me, how tall is it? 
Oh. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Six, seven stories? I can never remember. I think it's seven well, stories. Uh, yeah, I think it's seven two. I, I uh, it just flew out of my head. Yeah, uh, it also depends on how you how you count it. Um, right. Yeah. And much of it was. I mean, when I was a kid, they they've gone back and forth on this. It uh, they would sort of cover it over, wall it over, so you couldn't look at it from upper floors. Uh, then they would open it up, and and that and depending upon who was owning the store at the time, but it's an immense space, um, and it is. Um, he basically reconfigures Philadelphia civic space. I mean, he makes this almost a, a, a new center of the, of the city. It's, it's extraordinary. Um, it's, it is like being in a cathedral when it's all open up. He's got that organ with however many tens of thousand pipes. He's got the, the Eagle, which is dear to the heart of Philadelphians um, at the center of the court. And well, this is sort of the I, I realized after reading the book that this is the fulfillment of all his ideas of art, of religion, of music. They all come together at that one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 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 yes, I mean, it, it, it's seven stories. And in the seven story atrium space that is in the center, the very center of the store, uh, it becomes its own kind of, of canvas for him to project uh, these festivals that are part of the Christian uh, calendar and the patriotic calendar where he brings his music uh, by the installation of this uh, great organ. It all comes in this atrium. And what's fascinating is these atrium spaces are a part of Burnham's, Daniel Burnham's department store um, architecture. He does lots of department store mm-hmm. design, which is fascinating to me, uh, his, his firm. And so many of them have that feature. And for instance, when you go in Chicago, mm-hmm. there's two atriums at uh, the old Marshall Fields. But Wanamaker's, and, and later they get rid of this because they soon realize it's actually a fire hazard because when you have floors open to the central space, fire can spread mm-hmm. very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Wanamaker's has this space that is bigger than any of the other atriums. Uh, and it, it's all about taste, but arguably I think is one of the most magnificent with the organ and just how that space is so large. It takes your breath away. You step into it. The they, air changes. They, uh, it does. And they used to have, uh, by the eighties, they got wise. They put a restaurant on the fifth floor. Uh, which was the best place um, because you could just, as a kid, you could just sit there and just stare and stare and stare all around you. It's just the best. Um, and you're sort of hovering in the middle of this magnificent space. Um, it, I, we could go on, but we have to, uh, we have to conclude here. Um, did Wanamaker, this, things did not turn out as he would have perhaps uh, envisioned in many ways, uh, he has been uh, this sort of combination of religion and uh, the store of commerce has been cited as one of uh, the ways in which consumerism in the United States has been, I don't know, made holy. Um, is that the critique? And do you think it's fair? I mean, is that what this combination of was that the unintended consequence of this uh, fusion of religion and commerce? Well, I, I, yeah, that's such an interesting question. I talk, I've talked many times with uh, colleagues about this over the years as I was working on the book. 
is uh, can you separate American religion from commerce? Mm-hmm. Were they ever separate in this context? Uh, is is a, a question when you look at different scholars' work and they can show in the revolutionary period about how commerce and and religion is working in in the United States uh, and unint- unintended consequences. Uh, uh, who's to say what how Wanamaker would be uh, working in the, in the world today? He was very old fashioned in some some ways, except he he was eager for new ideas and he liked to incorporate them. And so when he was exposed to a new idea, he often figured a a way to share it with others in the store, whether it was a scientific discovery or uh, the latest technology. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to to say what he would think about it today. He wasn't terribly self-reflective. He doesn't have um, all these thought pieces where he's struggling. He, he doesn't, think business and religion is in conflict. He thinks that they go together for, for this understanding the prosperity gospel that is he, as he's successful, the reason he's successful is because of God's blessing and part of God's blessing and his success is to give back. And for him, as everything goes bigger and more and more people come to the store and when he becomes tremendously wealthy, this is all because of that combination of commerce and religion, or as he said, business and religion. He was um, another goal was uh, perhaps more important for him uh, was that he was going to create bourgeoisie. Yes, uh, and and he might have even used that in a very different way than Marx would have done. Uh, he wanted to create burgers. He wanted to create citizens. He wanted to create the middle class, what we call the middle class. Uh, United States. Um, do you think that did he did it work during his lifetime? Did, did was that was he successful in doing that? It's a, a stupid question to ask. It's like I I, I don't feel like a historian asking a question like that. But I mean, how successful do you think he was? Well, I mean, he was. Uh, I, uh, you're right. It's a hard question. It's an enormous question. It is. It is it's, I, it's a ridiculous question to ask or impossible to answer. So go ahead and anyway. <laughs> so, so dive in. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is the whole thing about economics and how uh, religion and the growth and the birth of, of the, the um, middling mm-hmm. and then later middle classes. Uh, certainly a part of it is how you uh, deport yourself, how you dress, how you move in the world. It's also how your home is designed, how clean you keep your home, what your home looks like. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you have to buy stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, he didn't do this uh, alone. This is a lot of, you know, markets, uh, trends and economy. This is, this is, uh, too many things going on at once to say Wanamaker did this. Right. Uh, but did he, take part? Yes. Was he doing this with uh, other retailers and that it made it possible because of changes in uh, how goods were made and how, what kind of jobs people could hold and how much money they could have and what the wider culture through these um, shelter magazines, uh, so to speak, Mm -hmm. uh, everything about uh, how to design your home to women's magazines are telling you how to, to, to dress, how to, to be in the world. But this is not just middling classes for everyone. He really is uh, 
and I argue a part of this in the in the book is that it's about whiteness as well. Yeah. How to be a white middle class American, and because he was, and we we discussed this prior to recording, it is very striking how segregationist he is as a store owner. Yes, um, he thinks. This is what I found fascinating. He thinks he's progressive <laughs> because yeah. he hires African-Americans and he has he his Wanamaker cadets uh, and his education programs are shared with his African-American workers, but nowhere in the same level. And, and it's not in a uh, integrated uh, kind of way. This is separate programs for his African-American workers, and they're not on the scale as his, his white workers uh, he only has about 300 African-American workers, and they are trapped in service mm-hmm. uh, operators. roles in the, in the stores. And no one is ever promoted to store clerk mm-hmm. in his lifetime and not even until the, the late 1940s. Yeah. It's, uh, well, it's, it's interesting and, and su- it's surprising to me since given that we uh, – that his grandfather and father certainly seemed to – did employ – um, black workers at, in the 1820s and 1830s when there was a lot of anger uh, already by white Philadelphians at employing uh, blacks uh, who were coming up from the South, maybe com- coming free blacks who were coming from Virginia or Maryland and Delaware moving across the border. Uh, yet they employed them. And uh, so it's, it's also because those of us, if you know anything about sort of Jim Crow and the politics of it, you recall the incident where Booker T. Washington uh, took uh, was at Saratoga Springs with the Wanamakers and took one of Wanamakers' uh, daughters into dinner, uh, which created a tremendous violent backlash in the white supremacist South. So to find this about um, Wanamakers, very curious indeed. Yes, he he. Uh he liked Booker T's Washington's message because he really bought into the part that there is a role for African Americans in society and in his store, but it is in a subservient role. It is in a support role. It is in serving the food and running the elevators. Um, but it is to never go above that. And so he, he gives money to the, the Hampton Institute, uh, Robert Odgan, his, uh, uh, one of his business partners over the years who really helps him with the New York store, uh, New York City store, he he is taking tremendous leadership in, in the, the Booker T. Washington uh, movement and also mm-hmm. in helping with these vocational schools. But it is, yes, there are roles and yes, there are jobs for African Americans, but it is in this lower strata of society. Yeah, I, I, so, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want yeah. to... Uh... There's been a lot of good revisionist scholarship about Booker T over the last 20 years. Um, this is not – the roles that Wanamaker gave to people in his stores were below what were Booker T. I mean just the whole – getting beyond the whole Du Bois-Washington uh, controversy. These are certainly lower than Booker T uh, in the 1890s would have uh, envisioned for African-Americans uh, in the South, let alone in the North. Yes. Uh, yes. And uh, what, what I was really and that no one really has uh, that I can tell had written on Wanamaker during his lifetime and his employees uh, to an extensive amount and, and especially as African-American employees. And one of the pieces that I, I found uh, came across in my research was when 
he was called to a local church to attend the service that some of his employees went to. Um, I would dare say probably a, a lot of his empl- African-American employees were attending. Uh, there was enough reason for him to show up to church. And after church, the African-American minister, uh, the leader of this congregation, someone who's also a leader in the community, questions Wanamaker on his practices, hmm. his hiring practices, and criticizes him in public and says, look, you are not uh, promoting people. Why is this? And Wanamaker goes into this big speech, which he also gives to a, a group of African-American business owners hmm. um, under the invitation of, of, of Booker T. Washington at another point, uh, where he says, you know, anyone can be promoted at any time. If they just work hard enough and they do well enough, you will be promoted. Except that never happens. Yeah. And yeah. so he, he, he believe, I think he believes himself, as many people do, oh, well, this is, this, is not, um, this is not racist and I'm not holding people back. They just never can seem to, mm-hmm. to get where they should be going. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's very problematic. And, and it was fascinating to really get a hold of, of what his thinking was along um, these lines. Well, it's, um, it's unfortunate. It, it does jar with what in many ways is, uh, I have to say, it, it's a much more interesting and um, honorable, is that the word, maybe? <laughs> or an interesting and uh, man uh, who had uh, an immense, immense impact. I guess what we're talking also is, uh, is, in many ways, he wanted to influence taste. And that's very so hard to qualify or let alone and impossible to quantify, perhaps. Um, and it, in, he wanted to create a middle class, a bourgeoisie, through... Uh, Moderating and changing their taste, and he did not find um, African Americans capable of having their taste moderated in that way. Um, yeah, he uh, or or at the same level. I yeah, or the same level. Refinement could happen. Yeah, uh, but it would never, in his mind, uh, because of his of his views on race, uh, that it would never equate the same as whites. Uh, he also, in his hiring practices, didn't like immigrants. Now, mm-hmm. he had to succumb to this, and this is also part of why he's doing these education programs. Uh, he very much talks about in his writing about the trouble, and this is actually in l- public lectures that also his uh, leaders in his store give, where they have trouble finding enough American-born white workers. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this puts a pressure on a growing business. Those Italians are problematic. There's no doubt about that. So (laughs) (laughs) that's that's another podcast. Um, uh, Yes. What um, what are you working on now? Because uh, can you describe the project? Because it's uh, it's in many ways it's a logical follow on, but uh, even more audacious. And it sounds really interesting. Oh, thank you. Well, I definitely want to stay in religion and business. I'm absolutely fascinated and this turn (laughs) this turn in american religious history uh where we're thinking more about how business and religion has mixed in both the american but also transatlantic and transpacific uh Mm -hmm. context and how that has influenced and shaped so much of uh what is a part of of american religion today uh, I've been fascinated with uh, the building of American railroads, but especially in the so-called American West mm-hmm. and thinking about railroad technology and how it made people tremendously wealthy. 
Um, but also there were people who never made wealth uh, and, and yet it was jobs. And so in terms of survival and so thinking about the influence of this technology of, of railroads, both of, as form of transportation uh, and something that was being constructed and how religion was changed by the building of the railroads for the railroad workers, both the ones who are laying down the track and blasting out the tunnels in the mountains. So in, in that case, many of the Chinese workers, mm -hmm. but also the workers who are on the rail cars. So George Pullman's palace cars and the Pullman quarters and the Pullman maids. So uh, could you give an example of the, how religion is cha it's changed um, by that well, that's, experience? Well, that's what, where I'm beginning the, the research, but certainly if you are building and laying the track, uh, you are having to take your religion with you because your day-to-day -day work life is moving along. Mm -hmm. uh, and and you know, I'm, I'm at the, the beginnings of the project, but I'm fascinated to find that many of the Pullman porters and maids would find their job opportunities from other Pullman porters and maids who were members of the same churches mm -hmm. and the same religious communities. Just as the Chicago Defender, the the, the uh, great African American paper, was distributed throughout the country by the Pullman porters and maids because they would carry them with them on the trains, and mm -hmm. when they would they would uh, get off of, of their very long shifts, they would share it with uh, other local communities. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a beginning project. I, I initially came into it through my fascination with the Pullman porters and maids and George Pullman, who was a Universalist. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Pullman strike and the, his Pullman company town, but I've decided to enlarge it. And I really want to tackle that juxtaposition of railroads and religion and in the United States but especially in thinking about the West and the building of the transcontinental railroad. My guest today has been Nicole Kirk. She is the author of Wanamaker's Temple. And let me suggest that for the um, the aging Philadelphian, it is the perfect Christmas gift. Um, and it's also an excellent for anyone who is interested in American religion or American business or both. Nicole, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 